Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Hosting as always, my name's Dan, and today I'm joined by Paul. Good evening. And we also have Calm. Evening, Dan. Gentlemen, how are we both doing? Yeah, yeah good, well, thanks. thanks, Dan. I think you're saying that through gritted teeth, Paul, but I think we'll, we'll come to that later on, I suspect. <laughs> um, if we start then with the probably the hot topic of the weekend, um, Millwall fans yet again ashamed themselves with um, the decision to boo the taking of the knee in the return to uh, the new den. Um, there's been some opposition to um, the taking of the knee from, from some people and it's unfortunate to see um, the right honourable gentleman, um, the member for uh, Red Ruth, I believe, um, also peddling this nonsense that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist movement. Um, I've got nothing but contempt for those opinions and I've got nothing but contempt for anyone who's booed the action of taking the knee. If you don't agree with it, well, I think you're wrong, but that's down to you. It's your opinion. It's your choice. You don't need to stand there and boo. Just turn your back or don't come up from the the concourse until 10 seconds after kickoff or my personal choice. Don't go to a game of football in the first place. But um, that's really annoyed me, especially when you see how well it's been received. You heard a lot of applause at Anfield. You had a lot of applause at Stamford Bridge. You know, like people are applauding this, and I, I don't understand why people would choose to go to a football match to boo this. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said, Dan. I mean, I um, look. Everybody's entitled to a view as to uh, the the reality and the perception of of um, you know racism in in society and particularly obviously as it, as it pertains to sport and to football and everyone's entitled to have their own view about what what the solutions are to that problem um but 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 as you say dan there's a there's a point at which um basic decency and respect should kick in as well um you know we don't boo minute silence although you know you don't have to go back too many years uh, to find examples of where it did happen in english football um we don't boo minute silence we shouldn't boo the taking of the knee um it, it should be football fans should be bigger than that and they should be above that this argument about is black lives matter a marxist organization i think you know i don't want to get too political on this podcast but that argument's kind of been done to death back and forth and i think to an extent what what football has to do and i think the premier league has made a real effort to try and do in the way that it it's sort of gone about presenting it and, and the lower leagues as well is it actually when when football takes a knee it is about the message that Black Lives Matter. It is not necessarily a statement of support for any organisation or group. It is a statement that football acknowledges that there are still um, problems, whether they are societal or whether they are directly in the game, about the way that we represent and engage uh, people from um, non-white backgrounds and that, that there is a need to continue to try and take action to, to, to tackle that now what people think about the issue of racism in society beyond that is a broader question and people are entitled to their views whether we agree with them or not respect is football has taken a decision that it it, it wants to continue to push um 
to try and further further uh, the cause on on equality in the game. The taking in the knee is representative of that, and people should have the basic respect. If they don't agree with it, just stay quiet. Yeah, I think very very well said from from the pair of you there. Um, I mean, it seems you know depressingly predictable, perhaps that we're we're talking about it as a you know sort of particularly associated with with Millwall. We know that that club has you know certain reputation, deserve it or not. You can debate that, and it's deserved. Also, Cam. <laughs> Um, I've also well, I've also been led, led to believe that you know people associated with the club and people in the hierarchy are also you know deeply embarrassed about about what's happened yeah. as well. So it'll be interesting to see if any specific action is taken. Obviously, uh, you know they'll have a pretty good idea of who was at that game because of all the measures in place. So um, there's no excuse for not if they decide you know whatever the appropriate course of action is. If there is indeed any, it shouldn't be particularly difficult um, you know to target the individuals because obviously it was a much reduced volume of fans. Um, so uh, that yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that how that pans out. Um, I mean, I think to, to, you raised an interesting point about minute silences. I mean, I, I actually thought that the increase of the minutes applause was partly for the reason um, of you know people being um, you know very disrespectful during minute silences. Um, so you know, this is kind of an interesting example of how yeah, some some fans unfortunately um, sort of let 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 football down a little bit. Um, you know, with with their behaviour and. and you know, we we don't have time and probably isn't the right place to get into the racism in football versus society point, as you've mentioned, Paul. But I think I think we we sort of acknowledge that there is, you know, there is a link there. Football doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, so, you know, actually, to your point, Dan, around, um, you know, if you're going to be sort of racist to have that behaviour, don't don't go to the game. Well, those people still exist, whether they go to the game or not. So, you know, in, in a way, is them going to the game better because it means we actually have some visibility of it we can try and do something about it it's not sort of in the in the background if you like i, I don't know um but uh yeah it was very it was upsetting to see it um also though great to see that you know it, that was obviously not replicate that was not the norm and actually you know other clubs did themselves proud uh with the acknowledgement of it um i think there's always been a bit of a lurking doubt of what's going to happen with this when fans come back in even though that shouldn't be a topic um, and, you know, I've see, seen a few sort of discussions about it on on social media, you know, prior to the, to the weekend. Um, so, yeah, it's just perhaps it is a bit bit of a shame that it's sort of, you know, the same old uh, the same old clubs that seem to be. And I'm not aware that it was anyone else. I don't know if I know there's only a limit. Col- Colchester United had an, an, an issue as well. And really? Yeah, the, the players and uh, like senior kind of members of the club have have really sported out against it. And again, rightly so. I mean. It's not. It's not the Colchester United, the club's fault that they have. Yeah, a, a and was, uh, if, more if we remember, even when it when we first started with the taking a knee before, when we were still kind of just coming out of the the first lockdown, there was the the plane wasn't there. Was it Man City versus Burnley? It the was, plane yes. went over the top with the the sort of same white lives matter, and and I think Burnley as a club again dealt dealt with that very well and I remember Ben, ben me. me the captain making a really um, impassioned uh, uh, sort of plea really to supporters on the back of that game to say you know that is not the message we want to portray as a football club um, and I think you know that there is something there about uh, the way in which clubs themselves try to tackle this behavior when it when it takes place let's hope we're not talking about this repeatedly because I think um, 
you know that there is a a point there there is a point to the uh the taking of a knee i suppose there is a question and if you're looking at it from the other side of the fence you would ask the legitimate question which is you know how long are we going to maintain with the taking a knee being a standard in in every single game? Um, and that's something that football will want to to consider because I don't think it should become something that happens forevermore before every single game of football. Um, but but I think they are, that is a separate conversation about what's the right point to say that you know football has made its point. I think it did need to continue until the stage when there were fans in the stands. I think that was right. But I think there is a question about how long we want to continue with it being a, a thing we do before every game. And at what point can we try and deliver that message in a, in a different way? Um, but again, that none of that is any excuse or any justification um, for the incident uh, that we saw at Millwall and, the, and that you've just referred to at Colchester. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that you've you've both said there. That's, um, that's been covered very extensively and very tastefully, tastefully, but um, what I will say is that the right honourable gentleman, the member for uh, Camborne and Red Ruth, should have his borders redrawn and he should be put in charge of Pranickshire because that's no doubt where he belongs. Uh, if I mean, we we are going to be a bit a bit politics heavy on this this issue, which we try not to be, but we we'll be discussing another political issue um, next up. But we'll we'll have a break from politics, shall we? Um, we will focus instead on. Um, if I can find my agenda, I'll have to edit this out because I've got scrolled up too far. I've already forgotten. Um, Fans coming back to the ground. This is your moment, Dan. This is for you to tell us what yesterday was like. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to be one of the, the 2000 in Anfield yesterday. Um, we've seen all through the weekend um, the return of fans to stadiums. Um, I think the first team might have been Arsenal, Paul. Correct me if I'm wrong on Thursday against Vienna. Yeah, Arsenal played in front of a, a couple of thousand people on Thursday night, that's right. Yeah, and um, we're, we're taunting the away end with allegations that the Vienna team, uh, sorry, that the Vienna fans were not very good, um, which, which, <laughs> which personally made me quite laugh. Um, but yeah, The Vienna team wasn't very good. Well, well, if, if, and if, we're hopeless. If a team that's forgotten how to attack can score four goals, you do, you do suspect that Vienna might be... Um, not they're not Red Bull Salzburg. Let's just say that. Um, yeah, it was, and I'm 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 struggling to keep myself from getting emotional here. Um, I, I've often spent the last. It's been nine months since we went to a game of football. I was pretty much the last game before the the lockdown started was Liverpool against Atletico Madrid. Uh, that game yeah. should never have been played, not least because Adrian had to play. We should have been pushing for that game to be postponed until Alisson could play. Um, but we're going over all ground. Um, and I've felt quite empty, and, you know, as someone who, who suffers from from bipolar disorder, some, sometimes I'm quite open about that. Sometimes I hide away from it. It's just the nature of the illness. I, I have lost big aspects of my social life, not being able to go to... To Anfield, not been able to go to Langtree Park, which is the home of St. Helens. I refuse to call it the Totally Wicked Stadium because it's a stupid name. Um, <laughs> and yeah, when when I was walking up to to the ground last night, I could see the floodlights, and you get these stereotypes about floodlights and the smell of wintergreen and bovril and pies. I didn't want any of that last night. I just wanted to watch a game of football, and I thought Liverpool did a great job of getting things together the ticket was digital I just had to to put that my mobile phone in where I would normally put my fan card 
I felt safe all the way through. There was social distancing at all points. Um, and I went and I had a ball. And it's so important to me as a fan to be able to say that I've been there. I, I, know I obviously was going to get to a game again, but it felt... It felt a lot for the last nine months, like I was never going to get to see another game again. And to to be the the first game after Liverpool won the league, and to see us put on a very good performance, very professional performance against a quite handy Wolves team. And yeah, I'm just um, struggling to to keep myself together. To be honest, it meant the world to me. And I'm really glad that all clubs, oh sorry, not all clubs, but most clubs, well not even most clubs, some clubs. Can get the get the fans back in, depending on on the region they are. For anyone who's not had the chance to go yet, I, I'm sorry for you. I really hope that the restrictions are lifted soon and that you can, um, because everyone deserves a chance to go and watch the team. And it's been really really tough for me to not go. And I feel a bit of peace and I feel happier for going. I feel like something's been lifted although I'm not going to be able to go for probably another three games if not four depending on the, the ballot situation and yeah um, I'm glad that some clubs can now begin to make money again off a match day. I don't suspect Liverpool made much of a of a profit last night but that's that's not a concern for Liverpool Yeah I, I think that's a really good point to end with Dan is that the um, ultimately the reason football clubs need fans in the stadium is because it, it makes money for them but 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 actually I think what we're what we've discovered during the lockdown and and during the the games behind closed doors is that actually fans in football stadiums mean much more than money um they are an integral part of the atmosphere of football they're an integral part of the feeling of a match day they're an integral part of the um the momentum of a game and, and I think we've talked about this before about the way players play and the way the momentum changes and uh, uh, and those sorts of factors that that you just don't have in in empty stadia and I think um, you know we've realized what a critical part football fans play to the product on the field when they've not been there um, now ultimately the long term is that we can get it back in a way that's profitable for clubs and that enables clubs to to bring in that important revenue we we've talked endlessly about the fact that it's much more important down down at the lower reaches for that revenue to come back and the, and the quicker the better um, but I think at all levels of football the product is just enhanced incredibly by having people in the stands um, by having people there who care about the outcome and who are invested in the outcome, and um, it's great to see fans back. It was it was good to see it at some of the games over the weekend in the Premier League and and elsewhere. And as you say, Dan, let's let's cross our fingers that as we move into 2021 and and whatever happens with the you know the vaccination program and everything else, that we can soon get back to having you know full Anfield and and a, a full. Um, Goodison Park and a full Stamford Bridge and wherever else you want to you want to name, um, because it just enhances the experience for the people who are there playing and and coaching and participating in the game, but it also enhances the experience for those of us who who are sitting watching it at home because um, it, it it you feel those momentum shifts in a way that you don't when uh, it's people playing a training match in front of in front of tins noise. And, and no one needs to hear Robbie Savage's voice any more clearly. Uh, oh, 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 yeah. oh, 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 Steve McManaman. 
yeah, or ninety percent of pundits. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly ninety nine point nine percent to the people who are on BT Sport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I was, you know, mate, you know, it was lovely hearing that sort of recital there, uh, Dan, and you know, you know what the experience was like, and you know, as someone, you know, of the three of us, you know, obviously, you being a season ticket holder, it is more part of your your sort of weekly uh, life, you know, so it's uh, to have that gap of, um, you know, nine months, I can imagine, you know, definitely will have sort of impacted you probably more than myself and Paul, who I think, you know, probably went slightly more sporadically to see, to see our clubs. Um, so yeah, completely understand how that was a, a big emotional event for you. And, you know, I think we were both made up when you gave us the, uh, you know, let us know last week that you'd, you'd been selected. Um, I won't go down the, um, you know, the apparent news that the the pool of local Liverpool fans um, is apparently quite small compared to season ticket holders, but that's a, a, a separate discussion. <laughs> <the dead>. um, <laughs> but either way, either way, um, you know, I'm sure the odds couldn't have been that great. And so to get the first game back, um, you know, is 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 fantastic, and like I said, I know you might have things stopping you going in the next couple of games, but um, hope hope you can get to as many games this season, assuming that the the regulations stay as they are, and hopefully go in the direction of letting more people in and not any further restrictions. Um, I think everyone wants that, and yeah, it's it's you know, fans are the lifeblood of the game. I think we all we all know that, and I think it's you know, you realise how much you miss something when it gets taken away from you, right? And I think everyone's seen, even if they're not a regular match going fan. Um, you know, as Paul said, you know, from watching on the TV, it just it's missing something. You know, it's just weird. It's not right. And, you know, the armchair fans don't like it. Match going fans don't like it. Players, managers don't like it. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed as we go into the new year that we'll we'll start to see it going in in the direction we want. And that, you know, this will be a good, you know, it sounds like Liverpool did a really good job with it. Um, obviously, they do have probably one of the, the you know, obviously the bigger stadiums and and, and then the more, you know, perhaps the, the funds at their disposal to make sure that they comply with the rules. That might be trickier as you get into smaller and older grounds. So we'll have to see how that replicates. But if the clubs that are entrusted with doing it at the moment are doing a good job and hopefully, you know, it's in everyone's interest for them to do that, I'm sure they will. Then it will sort of show the government that, you know, actually, yes, fans can be trusted uh, and it will help to build that case, you know, to ramp it up. And then, you know, with vaccines coming in as well, we'll hopefully make it uh, even easier. So fingers crossed by the end of the season, we might we might just be back to normal. Uh, that might be wishful thinking, but certainly for the start of next season, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be on the right trajectory for that. Yeah, I think you, you've uh, you've called it right there, Khan. I mean, I, I don't anticipate personally any kind of normal-sized crowds this side, this season, you know, like this side of August. But I, I would expect, if things go well with the vaccine, maybe you, you'll get um, a, a position where you can have all-season ticket holders in the ground, for example. Mm. Um, mm. One one interesting difference between Everton and Liverpool. Um, making it a requirement that um, you have a COVID test prior to going into the game, which Liverpool didn't. They encouraged you to go one, and you were told, well, you could go for one, but there was none nearby to me. A, one, one, a, a quick um, quick test centre has just opened up in St. Helens today, actually. But, um, yeah, I wasn't in a position where I could go for one beforehand in a convenient location. Am- Anfield, ironically, was one of the venues where the uh, the quick tests were taking place, which is why the Liverpool City region, of which I am in, obviously I'm born and bred, some might say inbred, um, St. Helens, but um, 
you know, I, I live in Liverpool City region. That's that's the the way the the political boundaries have gone um, locally anyway, and that's why. Um, yes, I don't live in Liverpool, um, but because of the way things have been labelled by the government, and I'm in Tier Two, which means I could apply to go to go to the game. Speaking of of government, we'll we'll move on to the next topic. And thank you for for both of your kind words. By the way, I, I do genuinely appreciate. It. I think you, you any, anyone who who knows me knows just just how much going to the game means to me, and it, it always has. And yeah, it's been tough without it. But hopefully, there's some some light at the end of that tunnel. I was going to ask for your opinion, Paul. This is something that you you know quite a bit about. Um. Are we in a situation now with with the the Brexit rules for football announced last week? Can we say goodbye to the the likes of um, Thomas Danavisilus? Is the days of William Prunier done? Um, so it will be interesting to see Dan uh, as to whether those days are done. I think it is less likely in future that we will see those kind of. Um, I don't know what rate you'd get third rate, let's say, and that might be being kind to them, foreign players that we've seen coming in from uh, EU member states in the past, uh, where obviously the the freedom of movement rules have, have meant that there's been a, no ability on the Premier League to um, to enact restrictions on on Europeans coming into the country. Uh, we will now move to a system, as I understand it, based on what was announced last week where uh, players from EU countries are subject to the same requirements as players from non-EU countries coming into the Premier League, which essentially means uh, there is a set of criteria and if they've played a certain number of international appearances or they're considered under the special talent rules, then then they're entitled to come. Uh, But hopefully there will be a bit of a cutting of some of the really average... um, kind of third-rate players that we have seen from foreign foreign countries come into the Premier League and maybe not enhance the product. What I think is very clear is we are not going to see an end to the circumstances where the best top European talent can be imported into the Premier League. And that's really important because I think everybody agrees that as far back as you go in the Premier League, and I know it was something like four players, wasn't it, that first weekend who were born outside of the United Kingdom and and the Republic of Ireland who, who appeared that first weekend in 92. But pretty much since then, whether it was that first generation of your Cantonars and, you know, Bergkamp and Zola or uh, Ruth Hullet, or, or whether it's kind of the, the ever-growing influence of Premier League, um, of European players in the Premier League ever since, uh, they have enhanced our game tremendously and, and it's really important that they continue to be able to do that. Um, but I think the most interesting element of the new rules that, that was announced last week is that it, it, it produces essentially a blanket ban on Premier League clubs signing players from abroad before the age of 18. Um, and the reason I think this is really important is because... Uh, there was a stage, uh, and it probably is still the case now, but certainly two or three years ago um, when I looked at this, when the academies of the top clubs were absolutely full in that critical age group, that 16 to 18 age group, where you go from just being a promising teenage footballer to someone who could potentially have a chance to have a career as a professional. And, I, and we had foreign players strewn throughout the, the academies of top clubs at that age group. 
I have nothing at all against foreign players, but I think there is a responsibility on um, English football clubs and Scottish football clubs and whoever else to try and produce our own players. Um, and I think that that new restriction will make it better. I am also generally of a view that it's not a great idea to move 16-year-old kids all around the world far and far away from their home uh, to, to go and play football. Um, I, I think about myself at 16, and I'm not sure I'd have fancied going and living in Spain. You know, So why should we presume that it's fine for a Spanish kid to come away from his family and come and live in England? Um the Cesc Fabregas example has been quoted a lot this week about, well, it had stopped the next Cesc Fabregas. But actually, there was a really interesting piece in The Athletic that basically said, well, he is completely the exception. Um, and the rule is actually a lot, the, the overwhelming majority of players who come at 16, 17, even at 18, frankly, don't succeed in the Premier League uh, or certainly don't succeed at that first time of asking and end up moving abroad. Um, I mean, partly the numbers are skewed by the fact that when Chelsea first came into money, they signed anybody who got two feet um, <laughs> who was 16 or 17 uh, from around Europe and then stockpiled them in the academy. Uh, and not many of those players w went on to make it. But I, I think generally that's a good thing. Final thing to cover before I, I kind of hand on to uh, to you and Khan to, to give your views on it is there will be a restriction of six per season foreign players under the age of 21 for Premier League clubs to sign. So each club will have a restriction every season over a 12-month period um, of no more than six players under the age of 21, so between the age of 18 and 21 from foreign countries that they can sign uh, and put in their and put in their squad. So I think, again, that strikes a balance, whether, whether people think six is too high or too low. It's an attempt, I think, to reach a sort of sensible balance. I've always been of the view that generally um, the foreign players at 19, 20, 21 are less of an issue. If you're good enough at that age as an, as an English player, you will make the breakthrough, even if it takes you a while. And, and Harry, Keane, Harry Kane is a classic example that maybe it didn't happen for him at 19, but, but it did in his early 20s. Um, my concern has always been about English players missing out on potential opportunities in those key development years, 16 to 18, because actually we don't need to bother developing the kid from Walthamstow because we've got this kid from Amsterdam instead and we'll, and we'll develop him. Um, so I think all, all in all, it's good news. I think it probably strikes the right balance, but it's something that, that no doubt the Premier League and the, and the Football Association will want to continue to monitor uh, in the years that follow Brexit to see whether it's, it's having the desired effect. And ultimately, it comes down to the question that at the end, Dan, that the England team, which I think gets bandied around quite a lot when you have these conversations. But, but I think it's about more than that. And it's just about making sure we've got the right balance within our game. Yeah, I think the the angle around the you know will it improve you know the the England team will, will be an interesting one to to monitor. It might you know probably take a bit of time to to really see if we can attribute it to to this. But I think it's certainly you know, a really interesting thing to look at over the next um, over the next couple of years. I mean, I can't say as I'm a fan of restricting freedom of movement generally, but again, we're not a political podcast, um, so we'll we'll sidestep that one. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if there are sort of you know benefits both from. Um, I guess within, you know, selfishly for us, you know, whether the, the England team um, get, gets the benefit of, of, you know, younger players being 
sort of looked after better and focused on more um, from from English clubs. Um, but also then equally the the impact on um, some of the European clubs who who might get to hold on to their talent for a bit longer as well. Um, because then potentially when it comes to if an English club is monitoring one of those players and decides, no, actually we're going to make a you know a go for him when he's when he's eighteen, say if that's what the rule is, um, you know does that does that give the uh, you know the, the selling club perhaps a bit more bargaining power? You know, can they do things with? Can they sort of structure or will they all be looking to structure their contracts with those players in certain ways to make sure they get the most value from them because they're not being sort of poached at you know for sort of nominal fees as younger kids um, potentially as well? So it might give those European clubs a bit more bit more bargaining power and, and maybe a bit of a you know, sort of level playing field as well. You know, we've talked about how the Premier League has the financial muscle to sort of hoover up more or less any players they want these days. You know, will it will it sort of redress that balance across across Europe a bit more? Um, again, we may not see that immediately, um, but you know, potentially in, in you know a couple of years' time, we might we might start to see that impact. Um, and, and and whether it will actually mean that do young players then you know if they've developed at that club and not moved at such a young age, will they actually prefer to stay? Um, you know, in their sort of home country potentially as well, um, and 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 not move um, because they haven't moved so so early and sort of uh, you know maybe settled in that period um, between say sixteen to eighteen or whatever. So yeah, lo- lots of things. Again, we won't know this for for a while, but um, yeah, it's definitely something to uh, to I think keep an eye on. You know, when the regulations do come in and and see see how that impacts across yeah not just this country but um, you know in in Europe as well. Uh, like. <sighs> I'm vehemently opposed to the reason that we're here, but that's by the by. I think the rules are actually quite sensible. I was actually surprised at just how sensible they actually are. Um, It promotes youth development, and this is something that you will probably be nodding at at Khan. You know, like if the if the the future of Liverpool's academy is Trent Alexander-Arnold, Curtis Jones. Uh, Nico Williams is admittedly Welsh, but the, the same principle applies. You look, you look at United's um, academy prospects recently. You know it, this is probably going to lead to an, an emergence of, of more players of, of that level. Um, I mean, if, if I want to be contentious, if teams would agree to have five subs, you might be able to bring on some of these players a little bit quicker as well. Um, but that's something that we've done to death. But it, my, my point stands, you know, like if you can get someone off the bench or so on the bench and then onto the field, who is in the academy, you might be able to, to see how how good these some of these players actually are. My, my only my only response to the five subs thing and the getting the young players on the field, Dan, and and, and again, I don't want to labour on the five subs point, but. Trent Alexander-Arnold didn't need five subs, did he, to make his breakthrough? No, that's true. He he, he came through in Carling Cup games before. We, uh, we, we, we... And, and that's kind of my my argument has always been actually that when they get if they're good enough, uh, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, they will get their opportunity and they will they will make the breakthrough. And actually, I think you've seen this this generation. I hate hesitate to give them that awful tag that we all we all know what I'm talking about. But this generation of young England players that we have at the moment, some of whom were in that um in that youth World Cup winning team a few years ago. Um certainly Calvert Lewin was in that side and I think Maitland Niles at Arsenal was in that in that squad as well. So there's a few from that generation who are are now starting to to get games and make an impact in the in the Premier League and uh 
it, you know, I, I think there's always been an opportunity for people who would get to that level and are good enough. I think my um, my question has always been a bit more about is their route blocked earlier on just because they've, you know, the club's invested a few million quid in bringing in 15 kids from, from elsewhere on the continent. Sure, yeah, I, I completely understand that. The, the only reason I keep bringing, bringing it up, Paul, is because I see how good Curtis Jones is and was... You know, like, and the fact that he he was allowed to get more time on the field at the end of last season when we had five subs because of different reasons, and I think it's really helped develop his game. And he started this season in a lot more of a physical readiness for the Premier League. But the, 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 these are points we've, we've gone over. That that was the only reason that that I'm, I brought that up to be honest. But like I always go back to Curtis Jones's development because of how good he's become in a very short space of time. But as you always rightly say, if they're good enough, they will get their opportunity. What one one question? Well, a couple of quick questions about this. Um, number one is not a serious question. It's who will the first manager be who will manage to try and find a way to get around these rules? Wherever Sam Allardyce ends up, if he does again, he's good at finding loopholes and things. Oh, there will be clubs. Well, we already know from the the rules about how far from home you can sign an English kid, that the academies of the top clubs just bend and break and find loopholes in the rules and move kids' whole families so that they're within the catchment area. So there will undoubtedly be clever people at football clubs um, trying to find uh, ways around these regulations, and that is bound to happen. Uh and I would expect, Dan, as much as you, you're right to say Sam Allardyce has in the past been good at, at sort of trying to um, trying to use some of those loopholes. And, and Stu talked, didn't he, when he was on a couple of weeks ago about uh, some of the ways Sam tried to fill his academy late birthdays and all that sort of thing to try and, you know, pick up guys that the big clubs have missed. But I think you can probably safely assume that the big clubs will be the first ones trying to find a way around these regulations. Yeah, and uh, I, I would probably say that Manchester City will be at the front of the queue. But again, Manchester is a great catchment area for young English players, so let, let's see some of them. Um, yeah, the, the other thing I wanted to, to address to you both is, and I, I think I know the answer here, but are we now going to see... Uh, in English, when there was this whole homegrown fad a few years ago, there was used to be an emphasis on let's get some more homegrown players in the squad. Right, let's wheel out Scott Carson, who's forty-five, who can sit on the bench. That kind of thing. Are we now going to see this rule add a premium to to young English players as they transfer between academies? As when you say, as in that their value will in, will increase yes. because yeah. that yeah, they're more sought after. I mean. Possibly, um, it may depend on how easy it is if clubs navigating some of those uh, some some of those some of those loopholes necessarily. If if um, you know if clubs are finding that their sort of uh, stocks of players are, are sort of drying up, then then potentially yes. Again, I, I think it'll be one of those things we won't see it immediately. I think it's probably another knock on effect that we might not see for you know potentially another another year or two when you know when maybe the current crop have moved through and then it's all right who's the next lot oh we've only got half as many players then all of a sudden we might see their value start to increase just because of the the scarcity but then if clubs are spending the next year or two finding ways to bend and get around the rules then it might find that by that point they've already they've already sussed it out and they've already managed to um you know to bring over more more players from europe one way or another anyway so 
Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good question, but I, I don't think we'll know the answer uh, again for, for for some time potentially with that one. It, an interesting sort of side effect from the answer to wherever we end up on that question um, that the cons just addressed Dan might be um, the level of investment in academies at some of the lower league clubs because I know in recent years as the financial situations really bitten basically since the recession a lot of those league one and league two clubs who operate on tight budgets have really cut back on the amount of investment in their academies um, and if suddenly the premium for uncovering a young English kid who's got the ability to go and play at a higher level increases significantly because the top clubs can't source the whole of Europe for their players, they can only source the UK. I wonder if that changes that calculation in the heads of some chairman of some of those League One and League Two clubs. Um, I think just back to, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but when, when Arsenal took was it Luke Freeman from, from Gillingham and paid sort of a couple of million pounds, um, that, that made a huge difference to, to Gillingham, was probably more than they would have got for any of their first-team players at the time. Um, and I wonder if that might have a sort of, you know, clubs look at that and say, actually, we can get more here from developing a... Um, 17-year-old kid than we're ever going to get by by playing the transfer market with our first-team squad players. Uh, given that, I mean, transfer fees in League 1 and League 2 are so rare anyway now. Um, or certainly transfer fees of the sort of six-figure and above variety. Uh, I, I just wonder if that might be a further knock-on effect if, in fact, that supply and demand position does change slightly and and the value of young English players rockets. Yeah, certainly. I mean... I'm sure eyes will light up at Crew, who have f- formerly had you know a, a great record of of producing young English players. Uh, I'm, uh, they'll be like thinking we, we can get back to the Danny Murphy days here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Crew are one of the few clubs who probably haven't fallen into that trap of of cutting their academy. It's essential to Crew's business model, and there's a few decent decent kids in the side at the moment. Actually, that's that's kind of coped with the pressure of being back in League One better than maybe I expected it to so far. Um, sort of pleasantly mid-table. Uh, Crew's my second team for people who've listened to the podcast and don't know. Um, but but yeah, I think I think it, it might just change that calculation. The, it, I think the reason a lot of League One and League Two clubs have started to invest less in their academies is because that cost-benefit analysis said, you know, you need to be producing one every three or four years to, to make the funding of the academy sustainable. And uh, and actually what happens is quite often they get into your team at 20, 21, 22. That's then when they get nicked and they get nicked when the contract's running down rather than clubs going and buying them off you at 17 and 18. And I think if that if that sort of behaviour changes, then you will see that, that calculation that clubs are doing about the cost-benefit analysis of investing in their academy. That, that will change as well. And I think if it did that would be for the better because I think it, it's for the good of football that that local clubs, clubs that are really embedded in their community in Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 um, and, and the National League, that they continue to invest in trying to develop young footballers. I think that's a good thing for society as well as for you know the Premier League and ultimately the England team. Well, one, one quick, quick question on this one, actually, just around... Um you know, style of football 
Um, you know, it's often said and noted, and I think true, that, you know, in, in English football, and, you know, people talk about the Premier League being, you know, a tough league and so on. If if players aren't sort of over here at a young age and kind of getting used to that, um, do you think that there's a risk of, like, lack of effectiveness potentially with some players and having to almost learn again um, when they come over at, at an older age? Um, if they've, you know, if they've sort of spent the whole 18 years playing in Spain, you know, which or Italy or wherever, you know, that, that that's very different. Do you think there's uh yeah, question around effectiveness there potentially with, with some players? Just just an open yeah, question. Possibly. possibly. I mean I I suppose the you know, as I say, that there aren't actually that many Cesta Fabregas types and Hector Bellerin, mm. I suppose, fit in that category, who come over really young and then sort of stay in English football for a, a um an extended period. Uh but I think certainly there is a question about whether we may end up, if if actually the league, part of the reason that might be is because the league is so dominated by foreign players anyway, that yes, it's a Premier League style of football and it's tempo and it's fast and it's, it, it's physical, but it maybe isn't as physical as it was 20 years ago when our league was dominated by mainly British grown players. And whether that in itself sort of, tilts back the other way um, yeah. because so you get more British bit, players yeah. playing in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. They, they, and, so and, it, and managers it could, as well. It could happen that way. Yeah, um, and managers Definitely, and yeah. as well, who obviously, and, and you know, sort of dictate exactly how some of the teams play. So, yeah, that's no, a good, good chap. What you're getting at, Khan, is that young foreign players aren't used to the likes of Rich Arlison racing in with two-footed tackles in, in, in games. <laughs> I think Khan was getting a... Could they do it on on a wet Wednesday in Stoke? Is I think where Calm was going. <laughs> well, if um, if it helps Calm, um, it will, and it helps me. If 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 this, I mean, it's not. I I don't buy this as one of these flag waving, make Britain great again policies. This is actually sensible. I, I, there's a lot of sensible things in this, as I've already said, and it, anything that stops the likes of David and Gog getting into our team and David Bellion getting into yours, Calm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you can think of some examples as well, Paul. I, I tried with Thomas Danavisilis, who I know is probably the, I think he's probably your worst Arsenal player you've ever seen, right? Yeah, I think he I think he played twice. He came on once at home when we were two 0 up against Sunderland and we drew two all, uh, and then he missed a penalty on New Year's Day at Charlton. And going back some years, though, Dan, maybe 2000. I know. It was in between Wenger's first double and his second double. And William so, Prudier so William no, Prudier was, was sent packing quite quickly. That was a game. Was that around Christmas time as well? They lost at Spurs. I think it was. I seem to remember that. Yeah, he was a, a bit of a comedian. Um, Didn't he only get signed because he was counting all his mates? That was a story at the time. But I think I just think it was United needed the centre half quite urgently, and he was available. <laughs> and um, he, he wasn't available <laughs> for good for reason. <laughs> Um, if if we can can kind of and that, that's very interesting, uh, really interesting. So thank you for for taking the lead on that, Paul. And it's one of your uh, topic areas. Um, what well, another one of your topic areas? If we go straight back to you, um, simple yes or no question: Is Mikel Arteta getting under a bit, a bit of pressure at Arsenal? So it's not a question I've got a very simple yes or no answer to, Dan. Um, I think in terms of is he under any immediate pressure for his job? I think the answer is no. Um, 
is he under pressure to uh, both improve performances and results? Yes, I think he is. Um, I didn't think we were great yesterday. I know a few people said, well, we had a lot of the ball. I think I think that was a, a result of Spurs scoring early um, and then Jose being Jose and, and making sure that the it was going to be very difficult for Arsenal to get back in the game. For all that we had the ball, we had the free kick on the edge of the box at 1-0, um, which Lacazette kicked straight at the bloke in the wall. Um, and we had the... Uh, we had the Lacazette header in the second half, which I thought he, he did okay. We maybe should have done a little better. Loris made a decent save. Um, and for all of our sort of passing and, and, and territory around the edge of the Spurs box, they were really the only sort of two moments when I thought we might score. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was another disappointing performance. There's still the problems we've talked about before of, of getting the balance and the team right persist. Worryingly, yesterday that certainly the second goal—that's the sort of counter-attack that at the end of the Wenger uh, era and through the Emery reign we were getting stung on sort of multiple times a season. It felt as though Arteta had kind of stopped us letting those sorts of goals in, where we end up with a five-on-two at the back. Um, but it sort of just crept back in a little bit the last few weeks. I, I think against Villa, we conceded on the counter, obviously again yesterday. And, and this is indicative for me of him trying to, it happened against Leicester as well. It, it's indicative of him trying to get the balance between defence and attack right. And, and I think he is struggling a little bit with that. Um, on the flip side, you know, we've played 11 games. We've played away at Manchester United, away at Tottenham, away at Manchester City and away at Liverpool. Um the disappointment has definitely been the home results, particularly the, the the Wolves and Villa performances, which were really not not up to snuff. Um, he now has a run of, of kind of on-paper-looking fixtures coming up, uh, with the exception of Chelsea on Boxing Day, between now and kind of the middle of January. And the pressure is on him to try and put a, a, a run of results together. He needs to, to get three or four wins under the belt. And we all know at this stage of the season, three or four wins, and you can you can very quickly be, be in a much healthier league position. Um, so there is a pressure on that. I think... Unless Arsenal start looking like they're in a position where they're genuinely worried about getting sucked towards that bottom five or six teams that we've talked about before on the on the podcast, he will be safe for the season. But clearly, if he finishes in uh, 14th or 15th or whatever we are at the moment position, then, then he won't last beyond that. Um, so I, I think immediate pressure for his job, no. I think that's because everybody knew when when he took the job on that this was not an easy, quick fix. He's almost been a bit of a victim of his own success and that the, the cup win at the end of last season raised expectations a bit. But we are not, at the moment, a top four team. Uh, at the moment, we're a team that should finish somewhere around sixth to eighth. Now, obviously, at the moment, we're 15th, so there's, there's a big gap there. Um, but ultimately, I think that Arsenal fans were getting really, really panicky. Should just take a breath, just calm down a little bit. Um, we're only eleven games into the season. Let's see how the next two or three months goes, and let's see how that pans out. It, he doesn't look to me yet like a manager who's completely lost sense of what he's trying to do, which is what happened at the end of the Emery reign when we were playing, you know, four different formations every every game because he he couldn't really work out how to fix it. Um, 
but it's certainly a test of a young manager and it, it's one he needs to kind of raise to. And, and it, it fundamentally does come down to me to this balance in the team issue. I just don't think at the moment the balance is right in terms of how we're trying to set up and stop teams from scoring and how we're trying to set up to score ourselves. At one point, we were definitely more towards the defensive end. I think now we've lost the equilibrium a little bit and we're not really doing either great, which is which is not a good position to be in. Um, but we'll see how the next few games pan out. At the moment, I don't think he's any, under any pressure for his job. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense, Paul. I, I think um, you know it's similar with uh, to you know draw a bit of a parallel with with some Solskjaer at United and I made the point a few weeks ago. Like, what what would Arsenal uh, achieve by sacking him? If you know what I mean, where where do you go? You know, because he's so short into his tenure, trying to to sort out what is a bit of a messy situation there. It doesn't really make sense for a number of reasons. Obviously, league position would be one reason to do it, but as you say, still only a you know. Few, few games into the season that there's plenty of time to turn it around and I think if you know you have to if Arsenal you know made made a bit of an effort to bring in and it was arguably a bit controversial with it being still still quite young and inexperienced you know bring coming in from from the sort of backroom staff at, at, at City um, but uh, yeah it would it would be a bit silly to then sort of throw throw that effort away by uh, you know prematurely um, getting rid of him so I, I don't think anyone at the hierarchy and you know Arsenal generally aren't a you know sort of sacking club anyway um, so I, I would imagine that yeah, the, we'll ignore the noises from social media and Arsenal fan TV. And, uh, I was, I was just going to say, <laughs> which let's face, it, yeah, we know where the noise comes from. I, I was just um, going to say, Cam, the the, um, the Arsenal fan TV jabronis were uh, were screaming to get Pochettino win before the Spurs game. I'd like it's as easy as that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Exactly. Well. Well. First yeah. of all, I mean. I mean, what makes anyone... I've heard this as well. We just need to hire Pochettino. What makes anyone think Pochettino would take the Arsenal job? Mm. That's true. Yeah. Well, he, he, was, he was very popular for the most part with the Spurs fans. He had an excellent relationship with them. He knows if he takes the Arsenal job that that history is completely sort of solid from their perspective. Now, if the question was, well, what other job is Maurizio Pochettino going to get then he might think, well, you know, I need to work and I need to show that I can be a top manager, so it's worth the hassle of taking Arsenal. But that's not the position, is it? You know, Pochettino is one of the one of the prize name free agent managers out on the market. And whenever a big job comes up, his name is in the is in the pot for it. So I just don't understand why at this stage people think he would he would jump to take the Arsenal job. And as I say, I, I don't think Arsenal need to be thinking about new managers at this point anyway. They need to be thinking about how does the, the current manager um sort out the problems that he has and and get the team back to sort of looking a bit more like a cohesive unit. Um, and and that's the challenge for Arsenal, rather than thinking about, right, who's the next one, and who's the next one, and who's the next one? Uh, you know, Khan can tell you about Manchester United's kind of lurch from strategy to strategy over the last three or, well, what was it now, seven years since Ferguson left, or eight years since mm. Ferguson left? Um, yeah. And all it leaves you with, uh, and the difference between Manchester United and Arsenal is, if Manchester United decide it's not so sure, that experiment's over, they can give the next bloke another 120 million to try and reshape the team, another 150 million to try and reshape the team. They can go and buy another two or three big name players. Arsenal can't do that. 
So, so the lurching from strategy to strategy, which we've seen fail at Manchester United, would be even more catastrophic if it failed at Arsenal because there wouldn't be the money to, to switch every 18 months to a different plan and a different way of playing. It just doesn't exist. Um, so it remains a longer-term project and it remains something that, uh, unfortunately, as hard as it is when you're playing as badly as we are at the moment, the fans will have to show some patience with them, I'm afraid. Uh, I think we, we touched on this at the start of the season, Paul, just just, just my, my two cents. I know what Arsenal are going to try and do when they play a match. Whether they'll be good enough to implement it or not is a different matter. But for the first time in four, five, six years, they're still, still to, even though the results haven't been there, there still feels like a direction and a sense of planning at Arsenal. Um, which is why if I was in your position, I, I wouldn't feel hugely concerned. Is Arteta the man long term? Nobody knows that at the moment, apart from the Arsenal fan TV no. bums. So, and I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And certainly there is still a shape to us. We play with a shape every game. I think where there is a legitimate question is, have we got enough of a plan about how we're going to break teams down? And and I think that is an absolutely fair question. Um, and at the moment, maybe teams have worked what our plan was out a little bit and we haven't quite managed to, to adjust to it. Um, and ultimately, also, the, the, the front players just have to play better. Aubameyang's not been great. His confidence looks low. Uh, someone said um, on one of the shows last night that Arsenal, Arsenal forwards need to be hungrier. Well, I don't think I want Alexander Lacazette getting hungrier because um, it looks as though he hasn't said no to a KFC in a while, as it is. Um, and uh, and Willian had a good game against Fulham and then has been missing in action ever since. So, you know, the forward player, less said about Pepe, the better. The forward players have to play better, um, but the team does have to have to have a bit more of a sense of the way it's trying to break teams down. But not time to panic yet. If we get beat by Burnley next weekend, then maybe maybe one or two panics will set in. Um, but I think we have to trust the manager and, and give him the space uh, to try and get things sorted. That's a shame. I do like it when you go to Pepe, to be honest. <laughs> I did uh, I did sort of see, I don't know if this is actually true, but I, I heard that Aubameyang's penalty against Man United won your club goal of the month. Uh, competition, Paul, but I suspect it was because it was the goal of the month <laughs> because there weren't any others to choose from. Um, again, very very interesting. Um, any other business, gentlemen? One one thing that's caught my uh, my eye is the uh, the World Cup qualifying draw. I know certainly I saw someone tweet that Harry Kane's now set for a hundred goals for England as a result of that draw. I would argue, given that Andorra and San Marino were the t- two of the teams in our group, we we, we might get a hundred goals in this campaign itself. Well, yeah, I I think one person who will be relieved about that is is Gareth Southgate because if the if the results don't you know if the Euros don't quite go to to plan, but he's still in position. Um, there is no way you should make a meal of that group, is there? Uh, so, um, <laughs> to say the least. I think, yeah, I think he will probably sigh, uh, uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Um, there was just two others, Dan, from, from me, and generally, sort of, again, really quickly in the Championship, just wanting to, to talk about a team who we've not really touched on yet this season. So not continues to get 
No, not Derby. Not this is not the Derby County podcast. Um, but I, I think to talk about Reading because they continue to get really good results. They're sitting third in the table. When you look at the teams around them: Norwich, Bournemouth, Swansea, Stoke, Brentford, Watford. I don't think there's any surprise that any of those clubs are in the top six or seven. Maybe a little bit stoked because they didn't have a good season last year. But they're a relatively recently well-established Premier League club. We spent, you know, a long time up in the top flight. Uh, Reading, really, in the last few years since their their last relegation from the Premier League, have kind of been a bit middle of nowhere. And and suddenly, with um, a controversial managerial change that they made in the summer and bringing... uh, uh, the the Serbian chap whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce um, for the for the benefit of, of our listeners, um, but but he's he's really got off to a great start and to see them sitting third after after 16 games I think I think that was probably the surprise of the of the season outside of the Premier League, and similarly in League One um, we've now played 15 games and Lincoln City is still in an automatic promotion position which is pretty incredible. Um, you know, when you think about the story of where that club's come from in the last five or six years since they were a kind of struggling non-league club, having dropped out of the Football League, um, and to see the way that they've bounced back, and, and they're at the moment, and they were very early days, but in contention for a, a promotion bid for, for to get into the Championship, that would be an incredible turnaround. Um, so they were the, they were my two for this week, then just two two teams to kind of take a bit of note of who've who've maybe outperformed their expectations. Some someone I've got my eye on in the championship for underperforming is Preston. Um I don't think Alex Neal's uh, I think Alex Neal needs to watch over his shoulder to be honest. That they're in a pretty poor run of form. Did did they lose to Wickham or did they get a draw? I think they might have got a draw, didn't they? I think it finished too old yeah, in the I end. I think they got an eighty ninth minute equaliser. Um the 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 not they're not in a good run of form and like they seem to be the perennial eighth, ninth, tenth, which is probably okay with with most Preston fans. But they're looking set for a worse season than that this time, and that that might not wash. Yeah, it's a good point, Dan. I think I think Preston are, are definitely a team that um, I thought would be in and around the playoff picture, and and then they're sliding a little bit at the moment. After again, after a reasonable sort of start, they've they've not really kind of kicked on. Um, similarly, you know you still look at that bottom four and see Sheffield Wednesday, Derby and Nottingham Forest. And those of us of, you know, 90s kids, if you like, growing up in that era, will remember all three of those as, as established Premier League clubs. So, um, yeah, it, it remains a fascinating division week to week. Um, no, I don't think so. I, 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 again, we've talked about them a, a bit, but, um, you know, J- Jamie Vardy put a bit of a nail in the coffin um, for Sheffield United, who just can't seem to, uh, you know, probably thought they were good for a point um, yesterday, and still sit solid on a, on a solitary point for the season. It doesn't doesn't look any better for them. <laughs> the weeks go by, and the situation looks worse. And it would have probably been a well deserved point as well. To mm. be perfectly honest, yeah. they worked yeah. hard for it. I think that'd be your worry at the moment if you're Sheffield United. They are working hard. They are not. You're not looking at them and saying there's a lack of energy, a lack of effort, a lack of commitment. There's just a lack of quality, and it's been exposed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's. It, I mean, they 
they, they weren't the highest scorers in the league last season by any any stretch of the imagination, but it felt like you had to work harder to score against them than you do at the moment. Yeah, they got good value for their goals, didn't they, last year? Yeah, which is something a point you've made on on here before. You, you know, like they, they, they maximised their opportunities last season. Like they would win more games one nil, where and at the, at the moment they're losing those games two nil or three nil. Sorry, Khan, I, I I kind of interjected there. Sorry. No, that was that was pretty much it. <laughs> Not a problem, Dan. Right. Well, um, that's been a very interesting um, evening's discussion. That gentleman, to be honest, um, a bit more political than we'd like to be, but we're in strange times where these topics come to the forefront. Um, we're going to be back, hopefully, on Friday with a, a special episode of the. Um, of the Big Football Podcast, where we'll be talking to the BBC's very own Tom Rostens, who a name you, you may recognise because he quite often does the um, the Saturday afternoon live text on the BBC website. Um, now I can tell you about Tom's journalistic background because it's the same as me and Paul's. Um, like like me and Paul, um, Tom is uh, University of Central Lancashire journalism class alumni, and it'll be nice to have a chat with Tom and get some insight into how live text works because uh, I know certainly it's it, certainly a job I've always fancied having a crack at I mean I don't necessarily fancy watching some of the games that he has to watch but um, <laughs> yeah um, it's g- going to be going to be interesting to, to have a chat with Tom and um, thank you all very much for listening as always if you could please subscribe to the podcast um, you can catch us on iTunes on Podbean on Castbox and uh, recently on Spotify, we've uh, we've emerged, and you can also ask your Alexa. And mine's just flashed blue, rather concerningly. Um, um, like you can also ask Alexa to play the Big Football Podcast. Um, it, sometimes you have to say by Daniel Thomas. Um, obviously, it's the three of us, um, but um, I, I registered it, so I'm not I'm not taking all the credit, gentlemen. Not by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Um, it's like um, it's like what's his name, isn't it? It's like the police, which otherwise known as Sting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or or how it suddenly became Peter Kay's Phoenix Knights um, when it was written by three people. But we'll uh, we'll, we'll slippery slope, Dan. <laughs> yes, it is. It is, a, it is a slippery slope because they all fell out. Not that I'm insinuating that that's going to happen. Not not on this podcast. <laughs> not, not. Not, not on this podcast. Well, we've not made not fall out and we've known each other for fifteen years, but long, longer me and you, Paul. No, not longer. All three of us is about is about sixteen to seventeen years we've known each other. Now we've managed to not fall out, have disagreements, yes, but that's football, right? Um, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you all after a while. <laughs>